This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week we continue our summer author series with a fabulous woman, again, like last week, a neighbor of sorts of mine, someone who lives in the same community, and again, someone I did not know until connecting for our podcast interview. Her name is Leah Sipis. She is a trained attorney, but more notably is a renowned, widely published fiction and fantasy author. Leah has been published by Random House and HarperCollins, some of the premier publishing houses in the United States, and I came across her work first in a Jewish periodical online where I read a story that she wrote, kind of a retelling or recasting of a Jewish agotic tale. And I was so gripped by the writing style and the voice and the wonderful talent that I was taking in that I said, I need to look up who this is. And lo and behold, of course, as I noted, she lives right here in my neighborhood in Silver Spring. So it was great to meet another neighbor and an exceptionally talented one at that. And I think you're going to learn a lot about the writing process, the fiction and fantasy genre, and Leia's really interesting life journey. Meanwhile, a reminder as always to follow us on social media, at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And please do refer others to the show as well. It helps a tremendous amount. We really appreciate it. Comments or suggestions to JewsYouShouldKnow at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with outstanding fiction author, Leah Sipis. We're here with author Leah Sipis. And uh, amazingly enough, Leah is actually someone who lives in my very own neighborhood here in Silver Spring, but I never really knew much about. And then recently on uh, the holiday of Shavuot, I was uh, doing some reading and I came across this fictional short story and I never ever read fiction. I have like a rule. I don't, I don't like fiction. I'm actually a nonfiction trained writer myself and I just don't like fiction for some reason, but I read it and I was blown away. And I was like, I need to interview this person. And lo and behold, she's right here in my own community. So that's a long-winded way of saying, hello, Leah, how are you? Hi. <laughs> Part of my goal here will be to convince you to read fiction. There we go. Okay, so we'll <laughs> see how successful you can be. I'm one piece in, but I'm always like, you know, I'm, I barely have time to read as it is. Why am I going to read things that aren't true if I can read things that are true? But you'll convince me. I'll give you the chance. But uh, in any event, where are you from, Leah? Tell us uh, how you grew up, where you grew up, and so forth. So I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. So, you know, a tough childhood. <laughs> <laughs> Which part of Flatbush or? In Flatbush. Where was your family from originally? Are they longtime Americans, Brooklynites, or they come over from, the, from Europe more recently? So my father was born in Brooklyn. His parents came over from Europe, obviously, but he was born in Brooklyn. Uh, my mother was actually born in Israel, and she moved to Brooklyn when she was 16 years old. Family or just her? Um, no, no, her whole family. Um, so, you know, her father was a construction worker in Israel. Um, you know, he was getting too old to do construction work. So he got a factory job in New York, and that's why they came here. And did both of your parents come from observant families? Yes. My mother's 
parents um, were both Holocaust survivors from Hungary um, and they came to Israel and they were observant. Uh, my father's parents were from you know, Russia slash Lithuania, somehow got visas to come out in the 1920s, you know, moved to New York and were also observant the whole time. Fascinating, which is, which is not particularly common in that era. Right. Although I should say my mother's family was like um, Hasidish and my father's family was Litvak. So I'm not sure my mother's parents considered my father's family thoroughly observant, <laughs> but they managed to work it out. It's all relative. There you go. Yeah. That's good. So what was, what was your childhood like in Brooklyn? Obviously it's kind of the epicenter of the Orthodox community in the United States and if not the world, you know, what, what was that upbringing like for you? Right. So, I mean, I had a basic kind of sort of standard observant upbringing in Brooklyn. I grew up in a largely Orthodox community, not all Orthodox, but, you know, there were a lot of Orthodox people there. I went to an Orthodox day school. You know, I guess the thing that made me different was that from the time I was like six years old, I said that I wanted to be an author when I grew up. Um, I don't even remember deciding. It was just something I always knew. I remember I used to be watched by my grandmother, who was my mother's mother, who was Holocaust survivor who, you know, went from Hungary to Israel to New York. And I remember telling her when I was eight years old, I'm going to be an author when I grow up. And she said to me, that's not a great idea. Authors don't make a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) About which I have to say she was correct. (laughs) (laughs) I think Jackie Rowling did okay, but that's about it. Yes, yes. (laughs) What do you think sort of incepted that desire to be an author? Were you an avid reader as as a young child? What put that into your brain? All right. So I was I was a very avid reader as a child. Um, my father was actually also an avid reader as a child. Um, and he used to his family was very poor. So he used to kind of like do jobs to make money. And then he'd use his money to buy like one dollar used paperbacks. Um, but he really credits the library system with enabling him to grow up to be the reader that he was because you know, the fact that he could like borrow books for free and return them. And of course, he would never return them late and pay the fines. <laughs> um, unfortunately, as a kid, I paid them late and <laughs> paid the fines quite often because I had a different sort of upbringing. You know, my, so my father read a lot and really encouraged me to read. I um, mean, actually had all these old boxes of these $1 pulp science fiction novels in the garage. Um, and I used to actually just drag them out and read them. <laughs> what kind of books did you enjoy most? Were you really, was it sci-fi and thrillers and those fantasy or was it a mix? So, I mean, it was, it was really mostly science fiction and fantasy. I mean, as a kid, I read everything. Like I read, I read books that I even open now and I'm like, why did I read this? It was super boring. (laughs) But basically any book that you would put in front of me, I would read from beginning to end. But science fiction and fantasy were always my favorite genres. Do you have a favorite book or favorite author from that era? Oh, wow. So from that era, I mean, I read so many old science fiction books that I I don't know if I can honestly say that they were good. There was this author, Edgar Rice Burroughs, who just wrote like this endless stream. He wrote Tarzan, actually. That's what he's famous for. But he just wrote these endless stream of books about, you know, people on Mars and people on Venus. And, you know, they were like looking back, they were kind of mostly the same, but I just devoured them. Did you start writing as a young child or not till later? So I did start writing. Um, I actually finished my first novel when I was in third grade. It was, wow. <laughs> I guess I, I had just read all the Black Stallion books, which is, of course, about a boy who gets shipwrecked, you know, on a deserted island with his horse. And there was a whole series of them, which I read all of them. And then I came up with my own very original idea, which was about a girl who gets shipwrecked on a desert island with a dog. <laughs> 
Um, and I wrote that book from beginning to end. I was very worried about the fact that I never put paragraph breaks in anything. Like I just wrote a straight line, but I figured that when I got older and famous, I would just hire someone to put all the paragraph breaks in my books. That's an excellent <laughs> job for someone to, to do for you. Do you still have that book? Um, that's an interesting question. I would have to look through my boxes. I don't know if I still have it. If I still have it, I can tell you, I would never let anyone read. <laughs> I would never let anyone read any of the books I wrote in elementary school. I, and I did write several and they were all, uh, you know, they were all good learning books. <laughs> you know, you got to start somewhere, practice somewhere and uh, nothing to be ashamed of with the early less than stellar efforts. Yeah. It would probably be cute to go back and read some of those. Do you remember what the first book was called? What was it called? I don't remember. Probably something super original. Like, uh, I, I, I modeled it after the Black Stallion. So I'm guessing I called it something like the Brave Collie. <laughs> or something along those lines. There you go. When do you remember first kind of no, noticing that you had an actual penchant for writing? And did, you, did teachers start giving you positive reinforcement? Did your parents or your peers... I think I did get a lot of positive reinforcement. Um, you know, obviously I always, English was a very easy subject for me. Um, I would basically like, they would give out essays or short story assignments and I would essentially do them in class while the assignment was being given, you know, and then I always got good marks. Um, there was actually, I was not that excellent at math. And I know in fourth grade during math class, I used to secretly read books or write books under my desk. Um, and my parents told me years later that that teacher at PTA told them you know, Leia just like reads and writes during math class and I can see her doing it, but I'm just letting it go. <laughs> <laughs> There's always, you know, the kids think they're getting away with things and the, and the teachers might notice a little more than they let on. Right. <laughs> she's like, she's doing okay in math, but like, you know, really she, the writing is, is probably what she should be focusing on more. Well, to her credit, she lets you uh, excel at your, at your strengths. Yes. Yeah. Um, she was a wonderful teacher. I still remember her even before my parents told me the story. I remembered her. Um, and I also used to, I used to pass out my stories to my classmates. Um, and, you know, the other third graders thought the stuff that I wrote in third grade was great. <laughs> you know what? That's considered peer review. So that's, that's, yeah. that's the gold standard. In the <laughs> yeah. My parents also encouraged me to write. Even my grandmother, the one who originally told me not to be an author, years later when I got my first book published, which was a young adult fantasy novel, which was not her thing to put it mildly. But I remember I was visiting her and she said, I took your book out of the library and I read it. It took me a really long time. <laughs> and then she would go to the library every month and take out one of my books just to make sure that, you know, the library thought there were people taking them out. <laughs> <laughs> that was her, her charity to her, to her granddaughter. Yeah. So I guess as you were going through elementary school and beyond, you started really, you know, developing this and refining this talent. When did you write the first thing that you were actually proud of or, or that you felt really good about? Well, I started sending books and stories to publishers and to magazines, like when I was around 15 years old. Um, and I actually got my first short story published when I was 17. Still in high school. Yeah. So I was in high school. It was very exciting. Um, when I also, when I was in high school, there was this essay contest for about Jewish contributions to the formation of the United States. And I wrote an essay for that contest and was a finalist which was actually the most money I got paid for my writing until, you know, I was in my thirties. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? Like a $500 check or something? <laughs> it was, it was like, it was actually, it was $700. Um, <laughs> and that, and, and I got to go to this, you know, reception thing. So that was really exciting. 
That's great. Were you always interested, though, early on in writing fantasy and writing fiction? Yeah. So my, my first story that got published was to a fantasy magazine. It was actually a magazine that I subscribed to. Not a Jewish one. Not a Jewish one. No, I did also write a, a Jewish book at the time and I sent it to Feldheim um, and they actually wrote back to me. Most I sent a bunch of books to secular publishers who obviously don't respond to books that they get in the mail from teenagers <laughs> unless they're interested. But Feldheim wrote back to me and they said, you're a very good writer, but your book doesn't have enough Jewish content. <laughs> That's wonderful. That was that, did you find that heartening or rejecting? Um, I think at that point, I had read so much about rejection. And even just from sending out my short stories, I knew that you've got to be able to handle rejection if you're a writer. Um, and especially when I was a teenager, I just was a very confident teenager. And I just, for some reason, I always had this confidence that eventually I would make it. So the rejections didn't really phase me. I had a drawer full of rejection letters. Um, you know, and I just put all my rejection letters in that drawer. And it was kind of, I was kind of proud of the fact that eventually I ran out of room in the drawer. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any sense of how many letters uh, fit in that drawer? Um, I mean, like dozens for sure. Where do you think you got this, this sense of self-confidence from? I don't know. It honestly makes no sense because knowing what I know now um, about the writing business, it's, it's just, it's a really tough business. You know, many, many people want to be writers. There's only a certain number of slots. So you can write something really great. It still might not get published. There's no guarantee of success, even if you're extremely talented. Um, I have critique partners who, you know, have been writing for a long time who are great writers and who have not managed to get a book deal. So I guess partly I was lucky when I was younger that I didn't know how tough it was. Um, but partly I just had this sense, you know, which I guess I got from my parents that if you really want something and you're willing to work really hard in it, um, you know, and you're talented at it, that eventually you'll succeed, which I think is still, is still sometimes true. It's just not always true. <laughs> right. There's the, the myth of persistence always pays off. Sometimes it might not pay off, you know, and, and right. you have to be, I guess, satisfied with the reward of your effort intrinsically. Right. So, so what was your first book, uh, your fan what was it called? The first fantasy book that you got at 17. So that was actually, that was a short story. That was a short story. Yes, it was called, it was just, it was published in a magazine that is now long, you know, a long dead magazine. <laughs> but at the time it was pretty popular. Um, the short story was called Temple of Stone. And it was just this really dark story about, you know, girls who were being raised to be sacrificed to a dragon. <laughs> Lovely. Does anyone ever stop and kind of psychoanalyze you based on the themes of your fiction? Uh, my husband likes to do that. <laughs> It could be a fun uh, date night game, you know? Well, to the point where he's not allowed to read my fiction anymore until it's already published. <laughs> that makes sense. Where do you think some of these themes came from for you? I mean, talking about, a, you know, slaying a dragon and where does that emerge? Right. Well, I mean, part of it is that I read so much fantasy and science fiction that for me, writing in fantasy and science fiction worlds is probably similar to how many novelists feel about writing in the real world. Like, this is what I know with the bonus that, you know, I also get to change the world as much as I want. So all these themes are really familiar to me. They're kind of like all these fantasy tropes that, you, that, you know, people like to, that authors like to play with, like dragons, shapeshifters, ghosts. You know, my, my series that I'm writing now is a retelling of fairy tales. Um, and a lot of it is instinctive. I've read so much of it. I mean, when I was a kid, I could literally read like you know, 15 books in a week. So I've just read so much that all this stuff is very instinctive to me, you know, and it's easy for me to play with. The material is all there. Um, and of course the real world comes in as well. So, you know, 
all the things that I think about, all the things that I've learned, you know, history, my Jewish studies, everything like that, it all kind of comes in, but I don't do it consciously. I'm not like, well, I'm going to take this particular fantasy element and, you know, mingle it with this aspect of philosophy that I've been thinking about. Sometimes I do it a little consciously, but usually I feel like it comes out in a more natural way. How would you say you understand, you know, the world of fiction? And I mentioned that, you know, I've never really read fiction. And, uh, <laughs> and my father reads a ton of science fiction and things like that. I was always, to the degree that I was reading, it was, it was nonfiction. It just felt like it made more sense. It was um, something that I could actually learn about the world from and pick up real information as opposed to just a pure diversion. Not to say that I'm opposed to diversions because I've watched plenty of, you know, fictional shows and things like that. So I guess it's more in terms of what I read. How do you feel kind of that distinction between fiction and nonfiction? Why are you sort of tethered to one? Um, what does it do for you? Right. So, I mean, I should say that I read a lot of nonfiction also. Um, but I think that, you know, if you're kind of looking at reading as work that you want to get something out of, then yeah, you'll want to read nonfiction because you definitely at some level get more out of nonfiction. But if you're looking at reading as something that you do for enjoyment, then with some exceptions, because I've read some amazing nonfiction that was as enjoyable as fiction. But most of the time, if you want to sort of completely immerse yourself in some other world and some other character's journey, I mean, just escape from the real world for a little bit and you thoroughly enjoy yourself the way you possibly do when you're you know, watching fictional shows. For me, a fiction book gives me that much more than a nonfiction book does. How do you feel like the two relate as a craft or as an art form? Do you feel that you could you know, switch to nonfiction if you wanted? Are they, are they interchangeable skill sets or are they really kind of like two distinct universes? So I have written some nonfiction as well. I've written much more fiction, but at some level it's the same. Like the writing part is the same. The main difference with me is with nonfiction, a large part of it is the research. So you're doing the research and you're assimilating the information and then you're transforming the information into what you're writing on the page. Um, whereas when you're doing fiction, the main part of it is actually, you know, making it up and crafting the story, you know, and thinking about the themes and the characters and making sense of things. And then you do the writing. So the writing in both parts is largely similar, not entirely similar, but it feels much the same when you're writing. How you come to the writing is different, though. In nonfiction, you're usually getting your information from other sources, translating it for your audience or to make the point that you want to make. Whereas in fiction, you're doing all that work yourself. You are in charge of the story. You're controlling what happens. You're both forming the raw material and transforming it into a narrative. But in terms of the, the voice, you know, I was so struck by, there was such a strong voice in, in the piece that I read. I don't even remember what it was called. Do you remember what it was? It was published in Lair, the Lair House. Yes, Across the River. <laughs> Across the River, yes. It was like a kind of a recasting of a, of a mythical Jewish tale a midrashic tale? Yeah, so it's, it was a retelling of the story of Rabbi Meir and the Sambation, which is the story of how the Akta Motpiot was written. You know, it's a story about how, well, you, you basically it's a story that's set, set in medieval worms, and it's about how the Jews of worms, you know, overcame a threat to exterminate them. Um, and I'm, I'm actually really proud of that story, because it was the first time that I took a Jewish story you know, because fairy tale retellings and mythic retellings are very popular and very common, but they're not that commonly done with Jewish stories. Um, and I felt like I was able to retell it 
in a way that sort of made it more modern, which is what you do with retellings, but also really, you know, kept it solidly Jewish. Yeah, I was I was really taken by it, and but it was such a strong voice, um, and and I couldn't I couldn't imagine that voice writing nonfiction, I guess, and that's kind of so that's why I'm kind of wondering between how interrelated are they as a writer, how would you toggle back and forth? Well, when you're writing fiction, the voice is the main challenge. So as a writer, you have to be able to write in many different voices because you have to write in the voice of your character. So for example. Across the river, right, I, I was writing from the voice of a medieval, you know, Ashkenazi German chazan, but then I'm also, so my recently published book, Thornwood, is a fairy tale retelling about Sleeping Beauty's little sister, and there I'm writing in the voice of, you know, an 11-year-old princess. <laughs> um, and really, with most books, it's all about the voice. Once you get the voice down, you've done 80% of the work. You know, whereas you could have a whole plot and a whole theme and a whole idea, but if you don't have the voice of your main character, the book or the story is just not going to come together. So how do you go about developing that? How do you inhabit, you know, the mind of an 11-year-old girl or of a medieval male chazen? You know, like neither of which you are. I guess you're closer to one than the other. But how do you go about doing that? I guess, I mean, it's sort of like maybe like an actor in a way. So that, that is really the hardest part. I wish I had a solid answer for how you do it because then I could just do it every time. <laughs> but usually when I have an idea that I want to write, that is, you know, I kind of, I think about the character a lot. Um, you know, sometimes I'll sketch out some scenes from their point of view. Sometimes I'll write some random beginnings of the book to see how they come out. Sometimes I'll get lucky and I'll just start writing and the voice will be there and it'll be easy. Other times I'll have to work really hard to get into it. And, you know, sometimes it just won't happen and then I can't write the book. So I don't have a good, I wish I had a step-by-step -step answer. This is how you get into the voice, but I don't. In other words, there might be times that you have crafted out a plot and a, and a plan. And then when you actually go to execute, you see that it's just not lining up. Right. It's just not coming together. I can write it all out, but it just, you know, it's not good. And when that happens, and I have, there, there are books where I've written, let's say, 10, 20,000 words of a book. And then, it, you know, it's just not there. It's not working. Um, and I'll stop it because there's no point in writing the whole book if it's not going to be good in the end. And usually the problem is the voice. If you can't get into the right voice, then you can't write the book. Do you feel that you, you can normally intuit that or you need outsiders to reflect that back to you? Um, so when it comes to the voice, I can usually intuit it myself. I can tell if the voice is working or not. I do use a lot of critique partners. Um, they're usually there to tell me stuff like this side character appears in chapter nine and you never mentioned him before. Or, you know, a person closed the door and walked out into the hallway, but before that, the whole scene was taking place in a forest. <laughs> like plot holes. Right. Um, and also, the, well, they can also help a lot with the side characters and things like that. But with the main character, I do feel like either you've got it or you don't. Who are some of the authors that inspire you as a, as a fiction writer today? This is like a great era for fiction. And there are actually a lot of amazing authors um, out there who are working. In terms of my favorite fantasy authors. So one of my favorites, um, who I think about a lot right now, because she does retellings, is named Juliet Marillier. I, you, I'm sure, will not have heard of her. But she's a fantasy author who basically does adult retellings of Celtic fairy tales. Um, and her works just have this sense of wonder and this magic and beauty that is kind of what I strive for in my own books. Um, another author I admire a lot is Sarah Beth Durst. 
she's a fantasy author working currently who writes across all age groups, which is also my goal. So she writes middle grade books, which is for ages eight to 12. She writes teenage books, she writes adult books. Um, you know, and it's interesting to me how her books are all very different depending on the age range. And yet there's kind of a sense of, you, you can always tell when you're reading one of her books. So I admire her a lot as well. And as soon as this podcast is over, I'll be hitting myself on the head and saying, I can't believe I forgot to name these five authors who are my all-time favorites. Oh, Diana Wynne-Jones. Thank you. Let me, let me not let, leave her out. Diana Wynne-Jones is an author of middle grade books who is um, one of my favorite authors growing up. And she's an author who, even though her books are mostly aimed at age eight to 12, as an adult, you know, I have her books around when it's been enough time, I'll pick up one of her books and reread it as an adult and, you know, just love it and be completely immersed. Are there any Jewish writers in this space that are inspired you? Or are you, are you really kind of blazing the trail in this, in this regard? <laughs> I read a lot of Jewish books growing up. There's not a lot of Jewish science fiction and fantasy, <laughs> as I'm sure you're aware. I actually, I just recently read a middle grade book called Anya and Her Dragon, or Anya and the Dragon, by Sophia Pasternak, I want to say, which is you know, one of the few examples I've seen of Jewish science fiction and fantasy. I mean, there's an author, Rena Rosner, who writes adult Jewish science fiction and fantasy. But this is, these, are, these are all pretty new books. Growing up, I had not really read any Jewish science fiction or fantasy books. I kind of brought them together myself. <laughs> and other people are doing the same thing. Is one of your goals to popularize this genre within the, you know, the Jewish community, the religious community, or alternatively or relatedly to offer Jewish outlets to people in the community, thematically safe or kosher, we could, we could call it, uh, books of this type? Um, that's not really my goal. It's not really my goal to change anyone's reading habits, despite what I said. I'm not even trying to change yours. <laughs> Um, and also, I think this is a goal that would be hard to accomplish by an author because a lot of it is controlled by publishers. Um, you know, I don't know how open, you know, I, I actually do write Judaica books as well. I write under a pen name, Leia Sokol. And I write, I write those books for younger kids and they're mostly historical. I don't know how open Jewish publishers are to the kind of science fiction and fantasy that's popular in the mainstream world. I would like to write more Jewish fantasy that's aimed at a mainstream audience. And I have yet to tell how much of an upstream battle that might be, or to what extent it would be an upstream battle at all. I mean, it sounds like there's really very little of what you're talking about that you could theoretically really open some new vistas if people would be somewhat receptive. I mean, I hope so. It's definitely something to think about. It's also in the mainstream world, there's also a lot of openness right now in general to fantasy that's from different cultures and about different types of people. Um, and I think that's coming together. That's part of the reason why there has been more Jewish fantasy and science fiction published in the mainstream, but there can always be more. And I would love to be a part of that. Do you incorporate Jewish themes in all of your writing or is that only in like the story that I read? So not consciously, definitely the story that you read was my first story where I really completely combined fantasy elements, you know, and Jewish elements in such a completely intermingled way. Before I wrote that story, I would say most of my fiction, I could have divided into either, you know, this is Jewish or, you know, this is mainstream. Um, when my first book was published, someone came to interview me from the local Jewish paper in Boston, where I was working at the time. And since she was working for a Jewish paper, she needed my book to have a Jewish theme. So she sat down and talked to me about it. And eventually we concluded that the book was actually about the Thera, <laughs> um, which is well, you know, the concept yeah. of free will. 
you know, and I think she was right. That definitely was in there. But I was not sitting there thinking, I'm going to put the Jewish concept of Bethira into this book. It's just that it's part of the way I think. So it ended up in what I wrote. Just really subconscious kind of uh, infusion. Right. Do you think there's a real possibility of, of doing a whole, you said you're working on a series now, these kind of mythical retellings of, I guess, Midrashim in, in ancient Jewish Tales. Oh, no, sorry, I miss I misspoke. So that story was my um, drastic retelling. The series that I'm writing now, which is being published by Random House, is just retellings of fairy tales for middle grade readers. So the first one is called Thornwood, and it's about Sleeping Beauty's little sister. That one is out now. The next one is going to be called Glass Slippers. It's about Cinderella's third stepsister. And it's all along those lines. So none of those fairy tales are particularly or at all Jewish. It's kind of taking the non-heroes from famous stories and kind of highlighting their trajectories. Right. It's interesting. Like the, uh, there was this recent uh, Netflix series, Cobra Kai, about the karate <laughs> kid. And they took the antagonist, Johnny, and made him into like the hero in a certain way, or one of them, which is kind of like, it's an interesting way of like flipping the script then kind of uh, using the momentum of an existing popular work and kind of springboarding off of that to highlight other lesser explored aspects of that story. Yeah, and that's very popular in retellings because we all know the story from the point of view of the main character. So a very popular way of doing retellings is to flip it and tell it from the point of view of someone else. Do you think there would be an audience or, or an interest in, in kind of a series of what you did with this fantasy Jewish midrashic retelling? I mean, there's so many, you know, Agadot, so many stories and, and, and legends and so forth in the corpus of Jewish literature. You would have an endless supply of stories to go off of. Do you think that's something that you'd like to do? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm working on a middle grade book now, kind of that plays with the same themes, actually with a bunch of the Sambation stories, sort of working on it on the side while I mainly work on the books I have that are under contract. But it's my hope that if I can make that work, that there will be some interest in it. What do you think will be the response from, let's say, a rabbinic establishment when you're taking well-known or even lesser known Midrashim Agadic tales and further of you know putting a fantastical spin on them because as it is there's sort of this tension where to what degree are we to take those tales literally to what degree are they metaphor some people are you know more invested in the literalness of them and and others you know are vociferously opposed to that right at them and that's a big debate within jewish sort of thought but do you think that you would have opposition from those who don't want these tales to seem so fantastical it's interesting because one of the books I published under my Leia Sokol pen name is actually, it's called The King's Horse. It's like a book for first graders. And it's the story of Purim told from the point of view of King Ahasuerus's horse. Um, and I had a really hard time finding a publisher for that. You know, it certainly assumes way too much knowledge of the Purim story to be sold to a mainstream publisher. So it had to go to a Jewish publisher. Um, and most of the Jewish publishers were not interested, you know, in basically a retelling of something from Tanakh took me a long time to find a publisher for that book. Although I will say that once it was published, it's basically gotten positive feedback, um, you know, and I haven't had any pushback about it. You know, so it's my thought that, again, if you can find an outlet for these midrashic tales, especially stories of the Sambation, which, you know, maybe I'm being naive here, but I think that most people would not be vociferously committed to the idea that that was a literal story that happened. So it's, it's my hope that it would have a largely positive reception. 
I mean, certainly this story has had a largely positive reception, although granted the fact that it was published first in a secular anthology and then by the Lair House online. It's more of a modern Orthodox kind of, right. Right. So it, might, it may never have reached the people who would vociferously oppose it. But I, ha- I certainly haven't gotten any negative feedback on it so far. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just an interesting thing to think about because I, I think there's a real role for this. I think as the community, Orthodox community continues to grow and really explode in a, in a certain way. There's, there's going to be all kinds of kids out there, and, and including many who would probably really enjoy this kind of outlet. And whether there's a way to you know, make it palatable to even a very more insular or more protective kind of community, that could introduce a lot of possibility. And I just wonder how that, you know, how that reaction would go. So, but like I said, it's not my goal to like push my books or my stories into a community that's not receptive to them. You know, I basically, I write my books and my stories for the people who want to read them. <laughs> You can't force anyone to read, you know, anyway. So it's probably yeah. a fair, fair way of approaching things. So like, just give me like a catalog. Like what, what was your first really published book and kind of where did you go from there? And how did you get really into the mainstream publishing world? Sure. So I had published a bunch of short fiction. Um, essentially, so to go back to, you know, my high school self getting a short story published, however, my grandmother's and my parents you know, explanations about how I actually had to make enough money to eat and all that kind of stuff didn't make their way in. So I eventually majored in biology and minored in journalism in college with the idea that I would actually do nonfiction. I would do science writing. It turned out that I did not really like the journalism world. So after that, I went to law school. (laughs) I worked as a lawyer for a little while. And then when I was getting married, I decided that I was going to take a break from law and I was going to give full-time writing a try, since this would probably be my last chance to ever give it a real try. Um, And, you know, a mere six years after that, (laughs) I guess, I finally got my first um, actual book deal, which was for a young adult fantasy novel that was published by HarperCollins called Mistwood. Um, And that was a two book deal. So they published that book and they published my next book, also young adult fantasy novel called Nightspell. Those books sold well enough that they gave me another two book deal. So I published two books called Death Sworn and Death Marked. Death Sworn and Death Marked are a duology, but the other books are not, you know, necessarily connected to each other. The last of my young adult books didn't sell so well. Um, and at the time, I also had a disagreement with my literary agent. So I left my literary agent. And then I spent another four years writing numerous books and trying to get them published or to get someone to represent them without success. And then, so <laughs> this is all, well, I guess to say that my grandmother was certainly not incorrect to say that writing is not a reliable way of making a living. Um, but now, Baruch Hashem, I have another book deal. This one is for this middle grade series of fairy tales retold from the point of view of the Forgotten Little Sisters. The first one, like I said, is called Thornwood. That one is out now. That's about Sleeping Beauty's little sister. I'm under contract for another two books in that series. Um, and there will possibly be more than that. Since so far, it seems to be doing very well. And these are with Random House. These are, yes, the middle grade books are with Random House. So you really, you've been published by two of the most, you know, substantive, well-known publishers in the American publishing world. Was that surprising to you? Was that exciting to be like, wow, I really arrived when I've gotten these publishers or the real deal, you know? Yes, <laughs> it was very exciting. But when I first got the call from HarperCollins that they were publishing my first book, I was just like so overjoyed. I was so excited. Um, I was like, and they're also going to pay me. (laughs) I'd be okay if they just published it. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, you know, that was, that was really among the most exciting moments, you know, in my life really, because I had had this dream since I was eight years old. Um, and when my first book got published by a major publisher, I was 32. So it had been a long time coming. You know of any other Orthodox Jewish writers who have been published by those two houses? Um, so I don't necessarily know exactly which houses various people have been published by. Um, I know Rena Rosner, who I mentioned earlier. I don't remember who published her, but it's one of the major houses, um, and she's Orthodox. Um, there's someone else who actually also lives in Silver Spring, Adina Gewurz, and she has been published sure. by, I, again, I don't remember the name of the publisher. When you're in publishing, it all kind of tends to meld, like you read all these books by all these authors. <laughs> and even my editor at the publishing house was like, yeah, sometimes I forget who published this book. <laughs> I forget that we're the ones who published it, or, you know, I can't remember which, which publisher published it, but she's also definitely been published by um, mainstream publications. And there are a number of others, which again, as soon as this podcast is over, I'm going to be like, wow, I forgot my best friend. I can't believe it. <laughs> Have you found any conceptual issues with that, with that, any tension, uh, values, tensions, things of that nature, working with a, a major publishing house areas where you had certain sensibility that you wanted honored or confronted any ignorance or any you know issues with these houses? I mean, not really in terms of the writing. Again, my the books that I published with mainstream publishers have so far been secular books. And so it's not like I have to explain anything Jewish to them in terms of writing the book. And most publishers and most editors who are good editors, their goal is not to shape the author's book for them. Their goal is to you know help the author write the best version of the book that they want to write. I mean, the only difficulty I'd say is that in the publishing world, a lot of conventions and a lot of events are over the weekend. So like early on when Mistwood was being published, I was invited to a Friday night dinner with, with a bunch of librarians with which my publisher had arranged, you know, and it was going to be a very prestigious thing. And they were kind of trying to figure out, like I lived in Boston, it was like in downtown Boston. They were like, well, could you walk in? Could you do this? And I just made the decision that I had to keep things simple and just say, you know, I just don't do events on Friday nights or Saturdays and like, there's nothing to discuss. Like, I just don't. <laughs> Um, that was a hard thing to do as a brand new writer who had just, I mean, it, was, it wasn't it was like a struggle. It was the obvious thing to do, but you know, it was, it was a hard thing to do. But I would say that after that first time that I made that decision, it's just been simple. I just tell people when I'm not available and I'm not available. Um, and no one has ever really argued with me about it. I say, I certainly got much more pushback on that working as a lawyer than I ever did working as an author. <laughs> Interesting. Have you gotten a lot of mentorship over the years or have you attended many workshops or because it sounds like you're you didn't really have much formal schooling in this craft per se uh you, you studied journalism which is very different you yeah. know than what you're doing now um and you went to law school which again the writing there is much more dry you know, yeah <laughs> and, uh, like nothing like what you're doing now did you have any formal schooling or, or at least uh, mentorship things of that nature um, so when I was in law school, they actually had a program. I went to Columbia Law School and they had a program where you were allowed to take three classes in the Columbia undergraduate, as long as you could make a claim that it would help you in your practice of law, which they didn't really need that. So I went to the dean and I said, there's an undergraduate writing workshop, a fiction writing workshop that I want to take. Do you need me to make up some joke or some like story about how writing fiction will help me be a better lawyer? Uh, if you're if you're defending a client who's you know is wrong and you have to but actually pretend that they're right, yeah. And she said to me, "Well, you know, Brad Meltzer took that class when he was here at law school, 
and he never practiced law a day in his life. He sold his first book before he graduated. So go for it. <laughs> um, and that class was actually invaluable to me because until then I'd just been writing essentially completely on my own, just giving my stuff to friends and family to write. Um, and it taught me how important it is to have other writers read your work and give you feedback. So that class itself was a great class. The teacher was a great teacher. The, the other students were amazing, but it really taught me the importance of a workshop. Um, and since then, I have basically never sent out anything without having a couple of other writers, um, either people who I trust or people who I just reach out to through the various writers group I belong to, you know, read it and give me their feedback. And then I'll revise based on their feedback. Do you have a set crew that's kind of your go-to reviewers, or do you just bounce it around depending on what mood you're in? So I'm over the years, I've developed a short list of writers who I know that their feedback will be valuable to me, you know, and they want my feedback as well. So it's not, you know, so we trade manuscripts back and forth. So I always go to those people first. Um, they're mostly also professional writers, so they're not always available. Sometimes they're on deadline or, you know, too busy with other things and they can't do it. But I generally do go to those couple of people first and ask them for their feedback. What about the other direction now that you've, you know, achieved such success and acclaim in your own writing, um, mentoring young writers and giving back and maybe putting on workshops or offering guidance to younger writers. Is that something you've explored uh, doing? So I, I have done that, not in a workshop format, because just because someone knows how to write certainly does not mean they know how to teach writing. Um, and that is definitely true of me. <laughs> <laughs> As you can see, even in this interview, you're like, how do you find the voice? And my answer is basically magic. So <laughs> it's natural, natural talent. That's it. Yeah. Right. So, you know, teaching is not my thing, but I do volunteer to mentor young writers through various writers organizations that I belong to, where essentially it's not, I'm going to teach you how to write. It's I'm here. And if you ever have any questions or if you ever want to talk through anything, you know, you can reach out to me and I'll answer you. Um, and in the community, I've given the high school that my daughter will go to has a career program where they have people come in and talk to them about various professions. So I go in there and I talk about what it's like to be an author. Um, and I often get some follow-up emails or phone calls like, oh, you know, my niece, my daughter, my son, you know, my cousin wants to be a writer. Would you be willing to talk to them? Um, and of course I always say yes. <laughs> so not in a formal way, but often I end up, you know, at the kosher pastry oven or on Zoom or on the phone, you know, talking to people who kind of want to hear at least one version of what it's like. And what advice do you typically give them? Are you more bullish about it or are you more like your grandmother? <laughs> <laughs> so like I said, I, I don't think my grandmother was wrong. So I do tell them, you know, if you want a steady paycheck, um, writing is not how you're going to get it. Um, and I even think there's a lot of value to having another career and another way of making money because I know a lot of writers who writing is their main source of income. And because of that, often they have to write things they don't really want to write you know, or they have to, you know, writing stops being such a great creative outlet and it's just, you know, starts being a job and sometimes it's a grind. So I actually think that for most writers, it's valuable to have another grind <laughs> that you may, that you can use for your steady income, either constantly or even when the writing, you know, or the publishing or the selling is not going well, to have something else to fall back on, you know, so you don't end up sort of in this panicked state of being willing to write anything that anyone will pay you for so that you'll have a source of income. Um, so that, you know, I do say that. <laughs> Tell them that most writers are not like the writers you see on TV where like movie producers are pounding on their door asking them to make films of their books. 
and you know they go to book signings and like there are hundreds of people lined up <laughs> would that be a goal of yours to convert any of your writing into movies or other mediums so again that so that can't be a goal of mine because that's completely not under a writer's control it has to be someone in the big mysterious world that is Hollywood, you know, has to want that to happen. And then a bunch of mysterious, you know, Hollywoody kind of things have to happen. <laughs> and essentially that's the kind of thing that it's a one in a million chance. If it happens great, it is certainly not a plan. <laughs> it's not something you can plan for. It's not something you can even work for. You know, it's something that happens to you or it doesn't. I mean, I just wonder if something, because of the nature of some of the books that you're writing now with these alternate perspectives on famous stories, whether that actually would kind of capture a producer's eye as a way to capitalize on an existing popular story and say, oh, this could be a moneymaker because everyone loves Cinderella or everyone loves Beauty and the Beast and people love sequels. And even if they don't think it's high quality, they're just building on the previous franchise and, and therefore they, they see it as a way to make money. So I wonder if that would be captivating for a producer. I wonder too. <laughs> if any producers are listening to this podcast... <laughs> <laughs> Let us know. But still, that working through major publishing houses, wouldn't you think that there's more of a chance to, to have that noticed? I mean, there certainly is a chance. But again, it's a one in a million chance. If you think of about how many books are published every year, right, versus how many books get made into movies. If you're, you know, mostly watching stories on film, it might seem to you like, you know, every movie is just an adaptation of a book. It certainly sometimes seems like that recently. But in comparison to the number of books that are published, it's basically winning the lottery. But I guess if you have a book with a major publisher, at least you've bought a ticket. <laughs> yeah, good, good analogy. I like that. Leah, where can people find your work and purchase your work? I assume Amazon or whatever, but do you have like a, do you have your own website? Where do you publish your short stories? Like, is there a sort of a clearinghouse of all your, all your work? Yeah. So I do have my own website, leahsypus.com. There's no R in Cypus. On that website is essentially all my books, including information about where to buy them. Um, and since the, my books that are published by mainstream publishers are also, you know, all available at the library, um, there's a bookstore here in downtown Silver Spring called Loyalty Books. Um, and, you know, if you order through them, you can write in the comments that you'd like a signed copy or a personalized signed copy. And I will go down there and, you know, sign the copy to whoever you want before they mail it out to you. And my website also has a complete list of my short stories, including links to the ones that are available online. So that is the clearinghouse. <laughs> That's quite a clearinghouse. Fantastic. Well, Leia Sipis, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fascinating and uh, I've definitely uh, piqued my interest to, to read a little bit more fiction possibly. Certainly, if you put out another one of those short story retellings, I will definitely read it. I will let you know. <laughs> I really was grabbed by that. And I would love to see an anthology of those, with all the uh, various tales together, Sabaccio and others. Uh, so I'll be looking for that as well. Leia Sipis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.